0: Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Well, I'm back. Had a little vacation last week, ran down to Newport Beach, hung out with the family, and then I told the wife I wasn't doing any podcast stuff and I was just going to be low-key and just enjoy my vacation. But then I saw DKK had their carbs and coffee going down in Orange, California, so I shot out there took some pictures. If you saw on the Instagram, there was some uh, some video footage that I took over there. And I had a great chat with Londi Reed from the head shop. We'll have him coming on the podcast soon. So I'm excited. He's got a great story and I really look forward to uh, interviewing him. But this week's podcast is awesome as well. This week's podcast, and we're going back to early SoCal days with my boy, Frenchy DeHoo from Phoenix. Frenchy's been around the game for a long time, since the mid 70s, first with his yellow gear that you guys might've seen in the Hot VWs a few weeks back where he had his poppin' afro and his bell-bottom jeans and he was looking good at Knott's Berry Farm with his yellow gear. And then more recently than that was the cow Look special that ended up having his uh, 66 bug on the cover. And you might remember that 66 bug because it was all the talk on Facebook when he posted it up for sale for $65,000. People lost their mind. There was over 1,200 comments on it and I read about him. Uh, I read him off on the podcast a few weeks back. so that was a good time. Frenchie's been in the game a long time. Old school from back in the day when look was cool. He was there. Uh, We talk about what it was like in the early days, and we also talk about the cars he's gone through since that point, the evolution of his hobby, in addition to some of his personal career and that he's been in the automotive industry for a while. Also, we talk about the resurgence of the cow look craze that started coming back in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s. One of the things that kicked it off was the reproduction BRM which started a whole resurgence in the cow look vibes. So, we kind of talk about specifics with cow look vibes and feels and all that stuff. Uh, great podcast, good story. And I wanted to give you guys a little update as to where we're at. Thanks to the listeners for Let's Talk Dubs. I want you guys to know that Let's Talk Dubs is ranked the number one VW podcast of all the VW podcasts that are out there. And there's a few out there, not many. So don't spend a bunch of time looking because, you know, eh, there ain't that many. But listen, we are, according to uh, the email that I got, we're the number one ranked VW podcast. And I also wanted to go over some stats with you guys, let you know where we're at as a podcast. We are growing like crazy around the world, and the United Kingdom used to be number two. Well, they just bumped down to number four. The UK's bumped down to number four in podcast downloads, and they've been replaced by Canada in third place and Australia in second place. That's right. My boys down under are listening, and I appreciate the people down under. Send me some emails. If you guys are listening down under, send me some emails to Bill at Let's Talk I'll read them on the podcast. I look forward to uh, seeing the Australian market grow quite a bit. And, of course, our number one market we capitalize in is the United States. But in the top 10, we've got number 10 coming into Ireland, number 9, Virgin Islands, number 8, Sweden, number 7, New Zealand, number 6, Germany five Norway, four UK, three Canada, two Australia, and number one, the United States. So thanks for all the listeners that are out there helping this podcast. Just chug right along and keep getting more traction every single month. I really appreciate you guys. And what I appreciate even more is when you go down and share the podcast. Make sure you share this podcast with all your VW friends so that they've got some good VW content to listen to. And we're really enjoying these deep dives in history that we're doing. I'm getting lots of feedback on people for uh, the the history interviews and uh, kind of bringing full circle some of the things. You'll hear a couple of those in this podcast where there's a few things that we get into that we wouldn't really have uncovered unless we were doing this deep dive interview. So this is a good one. Pay attention. Listen to the details. But first, let's get a few words from our sponsors. Guess who's back? VW Trends Magazine, that's who. Bringing back the fun in magazines. A true cross culture of the VW hobby. VW Trends was always willing to step outside and bring you the latest trend in the VW scene. And you could be a part of this historic relaunch how, you ask? Well, go to vwtransmagazine.com, and there are several different ways that you can help relaunch this magazine. That's right. This is a grassroots effort put on by the VW community itself, relaunching one of those fun magazines that was bringing the culture to the market. They've got subscription packages all the way from $1.99 to the Founders Club, all the way to donate 5 bucks just to do your part to help get this back on the scene. This magazine for the people's car is for the people, and it's by the people. So now you guys can be a part of history and continue tribute to help get this magazine relaunched. First issue's coming out shortly, so stand by to get more details on that. But for now, go to vwtrendsmagazine.com and support the relaunch of VW Trends Magazine. Are you looking to get some disc brakes on your bus on the down low? How about a narrowed beam? What about converting your bus to IRS? Well, let me tell you what. The boys over at Type E Motorsports got your number. They've got a disc brake kit that allows you to go buy off-the-shelf factory-available parts at any local auto parts place and adapt disc brakes and wide five to the front of your bus for only 500 bucks. You can pick up that kit. That takes your 63 to 67 bus and converts it to discs in the front with ready to go off the shelf parts that you purchase at your local auto parts place. How about a narrowed beam? A US made narrowed four inch link pin beam, 215 bucks. Or to do IRS, 950 bucks for a complete easy bolt in IRS kit. He also does full bus beams end to end, rotor to rotor for three grand turnkey. So if you guys want to get some of your stuff decked out on your bus or your bug, go check out Type E Motorsport. Now, Brian's been on the podcast before, so you can check him out in episode number 105. Check him out at type-emotorsports.com. They've got a lot of suspension parts available, all U.S. made and ready to go. So hit them up at typeemotorsports.com. All right, so if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's get into it this week. Frenchie Dehoo Who on this week's podcast on Let's Talk Dubs. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have a- Okay, everybody. So on today's podcast, I've been chasing my friend for quite a while. Now, my friend's another; he's another desert guy, but he's not from the desert. He's from somewhere else. And and I'm just holding it back from you for just a second. Uh, this guest that we have on today's show has been in the VW scene longer. than I'm pretty sure longer than than I've been. Uh, longer than I've been an adult, without question. And uh, he's had his cars featured way back in the day. And I'm excited for our guest today, Frenchie DeHoo from Queen Creek, Arizona. Frenchie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: So, Frenchie, the way we start every podcast, and my favorite way to introduce every one of our conversations is what's your VW story and how did you get into Volkswagens?
1: Well, basically, it started when I was 14 years old when we live in Montreal, Canada. My aunt had a 64 Bahama Blue Beetle. And she picked me up and my sister to go up to the sugar cane, which they have every year in the winter. And I rode in the front seat, and it was a blast driving on the snow and everything. And I, I told myself, man, I really like this little little car. Maybe one day I should have one of those. And guess what? I have the same color and the same year as of today. Oh, that's and that's awesome. what pretty much that's what got me started. And soon after that, of course, uh, we moved to uh, Los Angeles in 1968. Went to high school here. And a friend in high school also had a 6970 Bug. And I really, I said, here we go again. Here's this little car I've always liked. Yeah. So I'm going to have to get me one of those one of these days, you know. And then sure enough, early 70s went into the service. I came home from boot camp and I had to look for one. I found one, 69, which was a red Beetle. My first show was at the Bug Inn. Actually, I had gone to the Bug Inn prior to me having a Volkswagen because I had heard there was an event over there twice a year. So I was able to sneak out of the house with my buddy. We went over there, and we checked out the bug-in. They had a car show. Nothing compared to what we have today. The car show was really a few dozen cars, you know, at the time, of course, and then the drag racing and slalom racing and everything. So that's what got me really hooked up at that time to go look for one. So I sure did. find a 69, bought it at a dealership in uh, Southgate, California. Bought it for not even $2,000. It was 32 years old or so, if I remember right. My payments were 65 bucks a month, and I was starving just to do that already. Right. And from there, it just took off. You know, I saw people at the show over there with mag wheels and lowered and everything and big motors. But I couldn't afford it at the time, of course, just buying that car. I had to make ends meet, you know, being in the service still at the time. So I was able to find another engine, rebuild it on my own, bought a book, figured it all out, put a new motor in there, figured out how to lower it which we used to pull the torsion bars. we never had no lowering kit back then of course right pull the torsion bars out put them back in weld the ends and here's the car on the ground a little bit and then uh, the back end was the same way pull the torsion uh, the torsion bars out or the torsion just lower them that way to the spring plate and then lower the back and next thing you know I got a little job with uh, over Steve Tim's road buggy house in uh, Bell Garden and Steve kind of helped me out to get started. I had to build motors and do line work for him for a while while I was on the service. So when all my days off, I used to hang around over the shop. Well, Steve kind of took me under his wing and kind of showed me as much as he could. And next thing I know, he had me building motors for him at the time. Uh, stock Mostly stock engines, other than working on the goofy grape or the mean machine at times too. But other than that, everything else from there, it's just kind of history. I took off and next thing I wanted to do was build a show car.
0: Well, so- <laughs> Excuse me. Real quick, let me get back to your introduction to the VW scene. So you come down from Montreal, Canada, and you know you're into Volkswagen, and you get to LA, and you start to see. I mean, you're right there. This is like in the early days of the cow look scene, and VWs are they're they're like the new hottest thing that's out in the sure Southern was. California scene. And you know, <laughs> were you a mechanically inclined guy, like you wanted to get into doing the mechanics and, and a real hands-on guy, or was it a necessity based on your financial situation?
1: No, it was a dream, basically. After I saw those little cars, I said, you know, I would like to learn more about them. And being that they were two-door, they were compact, small little cars, small air cool engine, I said, I'm to get into this. So I kind of, like I said, i want to buy me a book <laughs> over at Pep Boys. And next thing I you know, I was really digging into it and taking some big chances, you know. But I made it happen, so everything was good. I ended up helping some friends uh, work on their Volkswagens, too, and build motors for them and helping them out. I was doing it for free. If anything happened, I wouldn't, be able, I wouldn't feel so bad. At least no I'm warranty. learning, right? Dirt on the car. <laughs> <Yeah>. no, <laughs> no warranty. So far, right? everything went well. So everything was good. And So it was just a dream to get into it heavily, as, as far as I could. After going through the bug and everybody kind of got me right there.
0: Now, going to the bug and before you go to the bug and you start to see, like, lowered bugs and all that stuff. Once you see, like, the performance side of the VWs, What's the, you know, you've got your 69 bug and you really want to get into it. And I'm looking at some pictures that we'll have posted, uh, that we'll have posted in the notes of the podcast. And at that time, it was like, what were the key things to do? Because kind of take us back to what, 79, 80? Is this around this time when you're doing this? Or is it Uh, really? 76,
1: 75, 76, 74,
0: 75, somewhere around there. And, And at this time, there's not like, there's a pl- there's plenty of aftermarket stuff but not like we have today so no, what, no, what's what's like the key you, things to do to your car like you are you, your first thing on your list like once you go to the bug in and you see all these modified bugs what's on your list to do now
1: brand new 48 IDAs
0: on a stock motor
1: that's correct and <laughs> i did <laughs> it was crazy uh, people told me I'll never run. So we're talking with Steve Timms, he told me, "Yeah, we'll make it work. No problem. We change the venturi,es change the main jets, idle jets, uh, change all that to make it run." You know, but after I ran on the stock engine for a while, I ended up having to pull the motor back out. And Steve said, "Let's just build a 1641, which was a Bolton 87, which I did. Put a 120 cam, and uh, put the carburetors back on, and it uh, you know, worked out really well." And uh, you know, I mean. It wasn't really chug luck. It was running pretty good. And he told me I should put S and S header, which we did. Mm-hmm. Went to Auto House and then got a header and put it on there with a QP muffler and everything. And uh, it ran pretty good. I felt like it had power, but just because of dual carburetors. But shortly thereafter, I decided to go bigger.
0: And so then I went the
1: seventeen hundred.
0: And now at this time, I mean, it's not until the it's not until the late seventies when they start coming out with like the ninety twos, then the ninety fours. And in that time, or I mean, those were like, those were big expensive upgrades, like machining the case, doing that kind of stuff. That, that was stuff that was kind of next level. Or were you guys already doing that at Steve Tim's place?
1: Well, at Steve Tim's place, what we would do when we did rebuild motors, we used to go to DeMello's, which were in Hawaiian Garden. We would go over there and drop off cranks and DeMello's would just turn the cranks for us. We would add the counterweights and have them welded. Or we would go to Gene Burke because he would go to Gene Burke every once in a while because he'd on his race car. He was getting different ideas from Gene as far as the head work and how to do the porting and all that. But Steve did everything in-house. So in my case, yeah, Steve kind of helped me out. But uh, like I said, we had uh, MP88s. That's what we were able to buy up uh-huh. over the counter. Same thing over out of house. You could buy that stuff over the counter, 87s. 88 would be for the series. But 1835s were already there at that time, 75, 76. A lot of guys were building eighteen thirty five. Or twenty one eighty. That was supposed to be the big hot motor. Twenty one eighty or or nineteen hundred TT motor. Those those were the most popular ones for the street that I remember with forty eight ideas or forty two DCNFs.
0: Now Steve Timms was you know his shop that he had there. Uh, how, how how long had his shop been around? And was he just a young guy in the scene at the time? And and was looking for uh, you know a young a young guy that's looking to come in and do some work at a discounted rate to learn how to to trade an
1: education for some labor. Actually, Steve Timms had started, like, you know, right around high school. He had bought a brand-new 67, uh, uh, the beige, you know, the, uh, uh Savannah beige, 67, brand-new. Uh-huh. And Steve had a couple of shops already, but then the shop that I worked at was on Florence, off the Long Beach Freeway. Uh, that's, that's when Steve got into it. He was, and eh, maybe two, three years into it already, right? While well, he was in high school, right after high school, he was doing Volkswagen work already, but, and, uh, Yes, yeah, so he took me under his wings, like I said before. And then what he also did one day, he decided to do a chop-top. And he asked me if I would go over Bill Hines, who was a well-known, you know, chop, doing chop-top, Mercury, and all that kind of stuff up in uh, Linwood. So he asked me if I would go with him. I said, what are you going to do, Steve? He said, I want to cut the roof off the car. Says says, why? I want to build a drag car. Says, oh, okay. So we went over there. And next thing I know, we are here meeting Bill Hines. And he talks to Bill. Next thing you know, we drop his brand new. He was maybe two, three years old. As far as I remember, when he got the '67. Yeah. Uh, and then he had to chop the top and then he created a goofy grape with that. But other than that, yeah, that's how, that's how Steve took off. And next thing you know, I was getting really involved with him and the guys that worked at the shop together, all of us, you know. Uh, it was really, really good. I mean, it took off really quick.
0: You know, one of the things that a, a lot of people, you know, everybody talks about classic cow looks and things like that. And your car being a 69, even up to 71 – those were at the time in the in the late '70s, early '80s. Those were still acceptable cow look cars. You know, today everybody puts the barrier at 67, but you know, I, I think the the cow look goes up until like almost 71. You know, 69, 70, because um, a lot of guys were building those cars. W- what was the mindset back then? Was it like you were getting the the newer you got, the better model it was because it had better brakes and you could do the discs and you could do all that stuff, or, I mean, because back then it's, it's a little different mindset then than it is now.
1: True, but you know, I remember even working at the shop, uh, a lot of the guys for the Cal look everyone one pre-67, if you had a 68, 69 and you fix it like a Cal look eh, it's okay, but it was preferable to have 67. From 63, 62 to 67 were more desirable car to have. Now, if you had an oval window or not, that was over the top because you could really find oval windows and do Cal look for them, because everybody wanted between, you know, the early 60s to 67. That's what people wanted to use to build a Cal look from, because there was more stuff you could use. Five lug were more available than MP8 spokes, you know, the, the four lug versus, you know, the five lug. So yeah. pre-67 is what everybody liked to find, because it was more like, you know, like Greg Aronson's car, the 63 Stunwood, the famous Cal look on the cover of the magazine. Sure. That's what the car everybody was looking for at the time is, something to copy around that era of the years, you know, cause that's what they wanted to use, and, you know?
0: And w- so at this time when you're doing that, th- there's also like the formula V scene coming out and those are, you know, those things are um, with, with the formula V, they come out with the SBG cranks. Now how, how does that, and, and how many guys are starting to run like the SBG cranks and things like that? I mean, a lot of guys are running welded cranks for cost savings or, you know some of the performance mods they were doing back then. What was as far as cranks and strokers? Did you ever get involved with like any of the SPG stuff and roller bearing things like that?
1: And that's funny that you ask because talking with Steve, he told me the SPG they were okay, but a lot of guys that we would use those even for the street or the drag, not knowing that you could really do a burnout from dead stop. Because next thing you know, they just break, and people kind of stay away from those things. I mean, of course, that's what we heard, but. According to Steve, the best thing to do was using a 78. You never use a 74, 76. 78 were probably the most popular crankshaft, I think, even for the drag race, 78. Uh, 82s were out right there, 84, not too many. Gene Bird was the one that was really coming across getting those things made, you know. But other than that, 78 was the big ticket there back in the days. unless you use a uh, stock 69 and you had the counterweighted welded on them and you had to have the crank balance and return and then make it fit so it would work. But there was nobody out there that I remember right now that would make me go 69 counterweighted like we do now through CB or MP or whoever else is making them nowadays. But back then you didn't have the luxury; you had to almost make everything from from scratch and hope it would work.
0: Yeah, it was, it was I mean the, the the options were severely limited back then, and so you have your 69 bug, which you get that kind of dialed in. I mean, you do a, a super nice job on that gold the gold eight spokes, the gold leaf pinstriping. And, you know, you had the nice stance on it and everything. And then you said after that, you go to the bug in, things kind of change for you and you decide you want to be more because you're doing you're helping out with racing with the company. But on the personal side, you want to be more show car. Correct. What's, so your what next, did, car,
1: what's your next car? The next car I found was well, I had my 69, I was driving that just on uh, to, to and from to the base in Long Beach Coast Guard base. I would drive that every day. And I decided one day, as nice as the car is, it was I was so anal about keeping the car dust off, clean every day. It just drove me nuts. So one day I decided to find another Volkswagen. And a good friend of mine in Southgate had an overwindow, 56 overwindow. He gave me, if I could give him a 1600 engine, he needed it for another car. So I built him a 1600 stock. I gave it to him and I got a complete 56 over window with semaphore, which I was pretty happy about. Yeah. So I ended up building a, a 1641 using a dual 40p11 with the tall stacks and my red Volkswagen was more like my weekend car at that point you know because it was nice and clean So the over window it was just kind of like uh, kind of stock primer gray for, for a while and then eventually I painted the, the over window and uh, that was so that was my car that I would use you know just uh, to, to 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 go to work back and forth and stuff and eventually believe it or not I took that car all the way up to Seattle penn Washington for the so the Northworth bugging number Four. Oh yeah driving that 56 all the way up there with the dual with the dual 40 p 11 and i got uh well, i can't remember the mileage what it was maybe 20 24 miles a gallon. i can't remember but i drove it all the way up there and i and got to be more of a trail i did that twice and that was like oh my gosh the motor ran good so i guess i'm gonna build a bigger one next time and the the
0: porsche <laughs> carburetor swap that was a pretty popular mod back then the p, the p 11 for the 40 p 11s yeah, you could get them for
1: pretty cheap because a lot of, a lot of the Porsche guys would change the carburetors. you know. They didn't want to mess with those things, so they wanted, They would put Weber's or they would put maybe a Zenit instead. And Zenit was a popular carbator even for the Volkswagen scene. Dual Zenit, a single Zenit, like Dino Don used to run. Mostly we had Buck Spray and the Buck Spray, they weren't okay, but we used to have problems with them. So we would use Zenit. But the Dual 40 P11, that was a kind of a good setup too, you know. The 48s were okay, you know, yeah. more fuel. They went. I mean, three hundred bucks for a pair back then. That was the whole paycheck for the week, right? They're just to buy those right. things, you know. Forty P eleven, you could buy for hundred dollars a pair, and you rebuild them for almost nothing, and you're on the road again. You know, you have to find a manifold was the only thing you had to find to, to fit the uh, the Volkswagen heads. You know, so there wasn't too much stuff available back then. You just you should you just had to look around, see what's out there.
0: Yeah, how to get creative? And yes. So the so then you go on to. You've got your 56. After your 56, you pick up a 64
1: Bahama blue bug. Yeah, uh, let's see. So after after the 56 was painted kind of light blue, you know, we painted that in, a, in, a, in the uh, back alley on a Sunday with a, spray, with a little small compressor from Sears, painted the whole thing, blah, 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 really? went to the it. with it, shorted the bug in with my 68, 69 bug. So that was pretty cool. And uh, after that, then I got the VW bus, the 61 bus I bought. Then the Gia, of course, came right after that on that Gia up in Washington State. It was kind of a little rusty here and there, but that was probably one of the cars I really got serious about doing a full sure car, you know, because it was between me and uh, Roger Grego and DKP. There was really only two or three common gear that I remember at the time that was really, other than uh, Doug Mish, he had one, but there wasn't too many Gia back then because the car was mostly on. But, you know, the sunroof or hardtop, that's what people were looking for.
0: And what was the attitude towards,
1: uh, towards Gia's, like from the average street scene? Well, you know, with Roger Grego being in the picture with his gear, he really kind of made people think that, wow, this is kind of a poor man's Porsche. And when you fix them up, like the way he had his with the alloys and everything, or if you put uh, BRMs on them, whatever, I mean, it really made the people think that, why, Carmen Gia? Those cars look really cool when they're lowered and everything. Of course, there was no lowering kit. Again, you had to lower it with the, take the spring, the uh, portion bars out, cut the ends off, put them back in. Again, you lower the gear the same way you would the bug. Right. back in with just a spring plate. But the gear looked really cool. They look really, really nice. If you did them right, they look really cool. You know, with a 1700cc motor. Yeah. Blade, you know, with the 42s, the 48s, whatever. And blade the
0: bumpers and get rid of the overriders and towel bars. Overriders. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the ticket back then. Of course, you know, being in the 70s, that's kind of early for the Cal look scene. But having the gear come in the picture was like, wow, this kind of looks pretty cool, actually.
0: And then, I mean, the the, the interior back then was interesting because they had a, a lot of those crazy fabrics, you know, those heavy stitch fabrics that you'd use for uh – you know interior inserts and stuff like you had in the gear. I'm looking at a picture of your gear right now. Which you guys to take a look at these pictures. You guys can look at the details at Let's Talk Dubs on the description down below, and there'll be a, a bunch of pictures of Frenchie's cars down there. But uh, you know what was the what what was the mentality behind that? Was it like these these are new fabrics that are out and it's something kind of new, making the car look a little bit updated? I mean, it wasn't like today when we build a cow look car today, we're going to build the cow look to what it was like in the '70s, but in the seventies, you were trying to use the newest, coolest stuff that you could borrow from other cars to make your car look like a hopped-up modern version of an old car.
1: Yes, you know. So, so basically, versus going with a square weave interior like the stock seats were done back in from the factory, everybody want kind of step up, doing something a little different. If you're going to build a custom car. You let's change the interior too, as you would the outside with the wheels with the motor. Now, interior was next, so. Yeah, okay. Uh, why, why are you using, uh, your living room couch, uh, upholstery? I says, what do you mean? He says, that's what, that's what happened in my house. It's upholstery in my house. But you have to understand the VW scene that had just taken off and people want to be different. They want to build something that was more suitable for them that would fit the car that, that made them look like, hey, you know, this is different. It's custom. And plus you didn't have to worry about sweating in there with a vinyl interior, you know, it's like cloth. It was so much more comfortable to dry, especially California or Arizona or, New Mexico or Texas, or wherever is hot. But yeah, the interior, was a, that was a big deal. Plaid interior, they call it a Herculon interior. That's what they used to call it. And there were a couple of shops in Orange County that would uh, that would do interior like that for the DKP card. You know, that was a big popular thing back then. To so do the cloth interior, it was more comfortable. Uh, you could design it the way you wanted it, you know, with a center plaid. The, the edges would be more like a vinyl yeah. on the edges. Uh, the back seat would be done in the same way. The headliner would be done totally different. The perforated headliner would be uh, it could be cloth, it could be vinyl, whatever the customer wanted to use to, you know, whatever they wanted to, chew, that was their car. So they kind of built a car to, you know, suit what they like, you know? So, but that was a big deal back then too. And Coco mats, of course, too.
0: Yeah, Coco mats. And, you know,
1: uh, yeah. the other
0: interesting thing is a lot of people, especially if they do a color change or something like that with a car, they wouldn't do a color match under the hood or under the, you know, the engine compartment. What they would do is kind of flat black it or make it more kind of a muted color you know what i mean like because a lot of these guys were building these cars in their garages or in their backyard or wherever you know what i mean so although these guys were trying to build these updated performance cars everybody was doing it on a a working man's budget you know and correct you know i i recently picked up a a chop top and it was a car that was in the cover of vw trends twice and hot vws once and it was built by a guy scott gildner in 1984 and this car was basically a stock bug. They chopped the top. The outside's got a fantastic paint job. Uh, but under the hood, under the deck lid, it was, it was never really touched. You know what I mean? And Because, yeah. you know, back then, the funny part is he sold the car to Jim Moto, who's the guy who had it featured in the three, three different magazines. But, you know, when Scott built the car, he built it because he chopped the top because he wanted a smaller window car and they were harder to find. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah. ironic now, because like you find a 63, 64, it's like ah, no big deal. You know what I mean? Like yeah. oval, no big deal. We all have split windows now. You know, like yeah, all these yeah. all these cars that disappeared. But it was, it was a more authentic Calcutt car. I don't think is anywhere near detailed to the level things are detailed to now. But even still, these cars have a lot of detail. Like I'm looking at your your engine setup in your gear. And, I mean it's a tidy little engine compartment you know you got the 48s on there you're running the you're running the generator the alternator is available in those days because it's coming new on the beetle why are you guys still doing generators
1: I've always liked the generator look because it took it, it didn't take away as much as the engine compartment as far as the profile uh-huh looking at the generator was small you put an alternator it looks so bulky in there and I I mean even so it gives you a little bit more juice because alternator really charges the battery when you're idling in it, which where a generator really does more when you're driving. But to me, it was more about the look, what would look good in each compartment on the Beetle, on the square back. Uh, of course, you don't see as much, but on the Carmen gear yeah. or a bug, the generator is more to go in line with the carburetors. You know, the profile looks so much nicer having a generator versus the alternator. You know, I mean, that's that's why I picked that. And... Uh, uh, of course, nowadays, even nowadays, my my two cars that just finished, I have generators on because I like the look. Just you the like of it, the way it sits. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, and honestly, yeah.
0: it's a clean, slick look, look. I think you know. Yeah, I, I mean,
1: and of course, it's it's, it's different. You know, I, I don't knock anyone that has different ideas to do their engine compartment, but everybody's got different ideas, and and uh, that's basically what I like. Now, going back to what you mentioned before, when the guys painted their cars, I don't think I remember people saying frame off. Other right. than other than Roger Grego did on his gear a couple times. But most of the guys, it wouldn't take a body off, the pan, They would just paint the outside the best they can. Maybe the door jam would get painted to match the car. If not, they'd leave everything else on the inside, the original color, and they would change color on the outside. It wasn't so much about that back in the days, but just something about having a nice car on the street and performance was the most important thing for them. Performance and the look of the car on the outside, the inside, it was not a big deal. Maybe just the interior, but under the hood, not a big deal. Until later... Like Roger did, and some of the DKP guys, they would use engine turn on the uh, some of the pieces on the dash or on the engine compartment. They would use engine turn, and I mean, at that time, that looked really nice. It wasn't cheap to have it done, but it looked really cool, including the license plate frame. Yeah, those guys were, those guys were top notch back in the late sixties, early seventies. I mean, DKP is a proven club worldwide now. Anyway, that's the stuff they used to do back then. You know. Sure. So a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of clubs now, when they build cars, they look after that club and see what they used to do back then and get some ideas.
0: Now, your first, so the, the gear is the car where you set to say, you know what? I see what all these guys are doing. I'm going to pick the gear because I want to do something different. Correct. Um, you get the gear, so you're a little bit of a standout, and you put all your heart and soul in it. What's that experience like for you the first time that car gets featured in the magazine? I tell you what, I,
1: I was overwhelmed. When R.K. Smith came up to me and said, we're going to do a feature on your gear, I said, my car in the magazine? I says, wow. I mean, I was just beyond myself. I said, oh, okay, cool. So we did the shoot. Uh, it was done at, uh, which is called the Guilla Menu up in, up in uh, Buena Park over at the, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm. We did it over there. And then we did a couple couple of the pictures were taken at El Dorado Park, which is the, off of uh Oh, Hawaiian Garden, you know, uh, yeah. after 605 there, we did a feature over there when I had the eight spokes. Uh, and then Volkswagen and Porsche magazine did a feature over there. And then Hubby W mm-hmm. did one, which was really cool, having three different gears. You know, one was uh, Mark Tremblay's Drag Car in California Stink. The other one was uh, 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 Mike Smith's wife, Robin. She had that the yellow. Uh, gear with yellow eight spokes and mine was the show car so we call it show street and go yeah. so that was a cool feature right there we kind of yeah that was that was a really good article right there that made me feel really good and i get a lot of uh publicity out of it from HW. did a good job featuring the car and and after that it was like okay i get the gear done now time to move on to something different you know after <laughs> a while it's hard to keep a car for so many years because i'm so into building them you know yeah. i've got more fun building cars than i do driving them That's me. No, 100%. I'm not the uh, only one. Yes.
0: Some people are more, it's like the thrill of the hunt. And then once you finally get there, you're like, okay, what's next? Let's start the adventure again.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So it's more fun about building them and you get different ideas. And, you know, of course, since you know, not to go too fast forward here, but since I've been in uh, Queen Creek here for the last six years, I did five full restoration between 64 and, and 66 VWs. A few we took took the body off and everything, but a couple of those cars were feature already, but I I love people say, wow, uh, why don't you drive if you build a nice car? Why don't you drive? Because I have no fun driving my car. I mean, it's okay, but I get more fun building them and make the person happy and people enjoy driving their car. Me, I was more of an anal type of guy to where a car is so nice. I don't want to drive it. You get worried about driving it. I'm not the only one here that has a nice car. People feel the same way I do, you know, but it just... I guess it's just a thing that people have,
0: you know. And when you so your Gia gets done, it's featured in the magazine, and now like every show you go to, you're kind of known. Like, oh, there's the Gia from the magazine, which is a kind of a big deal, right? I mean, you know,
1: you uh, know. you're right, you're right. And, uh, and then of course, what really made it even more was when Keith Soon uh, created the Cal Look magazine back about over twenty years ago, that and you featured the Gia there lot. Cars from Orange County, the DKP Cars, DKK, the SSA, all those clubs from California. They did a nice feature in, that, in this book. And that even brought a lot of people from to Look at this book, you know, I get ideas off the book or the car and the cars we were building over here in Orange County. Yeah. And the next time next time you see those people coming from Germany or Belgium or France or Japan, next thing you know, they're chasing you going on to the bugging. You want your signature? I I mean I got a kick out. I was kind of a little kind of embarrassed. But a bit. Kind of like, come on, I'm not that I'm not that popular of a guy. I'm just the guy I was in there when it happened. He says, but it made me feel good. You know, it made me feel like, okay, cool. I'm the guest, I'm the grandfather, like you know, like uh, Rich Kimball and Ron Fleming and all those guys. You know, we just at the age now to where we're here, the grandfather of the hobby. We're here to support the newcomers in the hobby to help them. Sure. And so their dream cars, because they see our cars back in the 70s, the way they were done in the magazine, I didn't want to, they didn't want to try to build one to our, our to their level, you know, but of course they can't really afford it like we did back then. We couldn't afford it, but nowadays it's different. But So it was good to see a feature in a magazine like that because it they, they brought a lot of people to get into the hobby and then really make the hobby more interesting and people to really enjoy it, you know.
0: Now with the with the Gia, you won uh, America's Most Beautiful Volkswagen with that Gia.
1: Yes, I won it uh, two years in a row. Uh, it was like bugging in twenty one, twenty two, if I remember right. Um, twenty one, twenty two. I think that's what it was. Yeah, and after that, it was time to retire and just <laughs> let someone else let someone else have fun, and then not to be. I, I, I don't want to be the type of guy that. I'm going over there because I want my trophy. If I don't get a trophy, I want to be upset. There's people like that, believe it or not. Oh, no. You go over there. If you deserve it, you get it. You get it. If you don't, then guess what? There's going to be another chance somewhere else.
0: <laughs> yeah. My, my personal <laughs> philosophy has always been I want to get the car done, get it to one show, show it, get it featured, and then drive the crap out of it. I mean, that's just been my philosophy yeah. with my personal cars. But yep. it's, it's just, you know, I, I'm almost, you know, looking forward to, okay, get the first scratch and the first this so I can just say, okay, I'm over it. We're driving it now. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, get to enjoy the car. Because for me, I, I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm having cars built or I'm building them or, or either way it goes, there's a vision for me that I have of like, I want to be enjoying that car. You're building up, you know, it's, it's so funny because in this hobby of Volkswagens, we build up the most economy, conservative car that we build to like crazy punk rock level. Like it goes from this, this, this econo box to something that's really something that's an individual personalized car that, that in our hobby, there's so many different styles you can go with.
1: Yep. Yep. You're right. You're right. And everybody's different. Uh, and, of, and of course for the hobby is good as of today, because, and I'm sure a lot of people that are really into it now they can see the, the the value of these cars. Now, especially if you go to Barry Jackson, a lot of those auctions, people are amazed how much some of the VW bug or the buses or, or any other type of VW, the kind of money they bring at those auctions, it's like, wow, you know, we never thought 20, 30 years ago those cars would have been such a big demand and such collector's item, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. No, and I, so, and I think the the 70s and 80s show car is kind of headed that direction. So before we move on from the Gia you decide to retire the car. No more, no more shows for the gear. And now maybe you get bored with it, or you want the next adventure. Do you sell the gear? Do you keep the gear? What happens to the gear?
1: Well, the gear in 1980. As uh, soon after we got married, I decided to sell the car to get our down payment for our first house. <laughs> so I said, you know what, the car can always be built. I've done a few before that, so a car can always be built. It was more important for me at that time to. To have a family, and then someday I could buy another one and recreate, you know, the one I had before. Sure. So that's, the, that's what happened. So I, I put, I sold the car. The car went down to a, a location where uh, there was a down payment for the house, and the next thing I know was uh, at a showroom window at a dealership oh. off of uh, off the freeway there, off I five. I remember right. Dealership up in Buena Park. He sold the car. It went up to Japan in 1984, and then at that time. Uh, we bought a square back. My wife had a square back. I, I fixed that up a little bit with eight spokes. Hold on a second.
0: It. I got asked the question. How much did you get for the gear when you sold it? In
1: 1979, I got $9,500
0: for it. That's big money.
1: That for, was a lot of money back then. I couldn't even believe I got that much money for it. But I mean, $9,500.
0: Because the new Volkswagen at the time is $3,500. Oh, nineteen eighty four thousand dollars, five thousand bucks.
1: Yeah, maybe even maybe even less, maybe a little
0: less. I mean, that's incredible to get that kind of money. So that says something for the car, especially for that era, for it to sell more than a new one. You know, yeah, it it, yeah. it really says something for it. So, um, and it's interesting because I always love we never ask those questions, and so we can kind of put it in today's dollars. But in today's dollars, minimum wage was two thirty five an hour back then. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a house was uh, a house was what forty five thousand dollars or, or thirty five thousand dollars? Yeah,
1: about thirty grand or so. Yeah, yes. I was making two. that was making $2. an hour.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and at this time, so so, and we're also talking work too, because I think work has something to do with a little bit of of work supports the hobby, and to to some degree, you're involved in the automotive industry your whole life. Yeah.
1: Yeah, thirty eight years with Toyota. I retired from them.
0: So, do you go from Steve Timms? You're working. You're, you're you're in the you're in the the Coast Guard, and you're working for Steve Timms. You get done with your service, and then you go. You stay with Steve Timms. You go work. Start working for Toyota right after that, or where do you go?
1: I worked for Steve for about a year, year and a half. I can't remember for sure how long. Then, then after that, I went to work for uh, Les Pernell, which was on Artesia and South Street, up in Bellflower uh-huh. or Artesia. So I worked for him for, for about another year until I met my wife. And then after that, I decided, if I'm going to get a family, I need to get some benefits. So I decided to leave and go work. A friend of mine, Bruce Maruna, who was in the DVB club with us, he offered me a job at Toyota at the port. So I got a job over there in 1975, 76, somewhere around there. And I stayed there and I left for a year, came back until I retired in 2015. It was there 38 years.
0: That's incredible. And, you st- and your position to- you started in
1: was working on the docks? I was working on the car wash for a year and a half. Then I worked in the detail shop uh, where all the cars came in from Japan, offloaded off the ship. They would bring them to our facility, and we did undercoating. I did the eight track, believe it or not, eight track, four track <laughs> deck. I did the installation on the Celica uh, ST, the vinyl top and the body side molding, the shadows and the lift back. Really? Air conditioning install, a luggage rack install, alarm system install. I did all that. And then they promo- promoted me to team lead, 10 cents an hour more. Everybody's laughing. I mean, 10 cents more. I wouldn't even take that job. I said, you don't understand. I want to work in this company. I want to work to the top. You got to start somewhere. Sure. So I got to be a team lead for a couple of years. Next thing I know, they bring me as a supervisor. I was a supervisor for 26 years. Wow. <laughs> and I worked it all the way to the top.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. And, and you know, what, what a lot of people don't, you like, Toyota today is different than Toyota 1975 right? Toyota's, Toy- com- Toyota's coming into the market and it's a love-hate relationship. People either love them or hate them because yeah, they, right. s- they see them as an import. And it's always funny because Volkswagen kind of never fell into that, that I can see. Correct. You know what I mean? Because it was like this Japanese invasion and yeah. they were building such a better quality car than what we were producing here in the States,
1: you know? Yeah. 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 Other than the cars from Br- British cars, the triumph or the Jaguars or, or the, uh, 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 all those other foreign cars, Citroën or Fiat, all those cars, you know. But if you had a car coming from the 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 from from the, uh, from Japan or China or whatever, you know, people look at it differently than the cars coming from the other side of the world, you know. So people treat them a little different.
0: Yeah, they would treat them like, oh, that's a disposable car. Meanwhile, it's the most reliable yes. thing on the road. And then how are your VW friends about you working for Toyota? Are they giving you a hard time or they're, uh, you know, or, or is everybody pretty cool or do you take a step back from the VW scene for a little bit? No, no,
1: no. They were okay because I understood. You know, the job is a job. Doesn't matter if you work for a competitor. That's you know, if you, if, it didn't really matter if you work for Hugo or if you work for Chevrolet or whoever. I remember Toyota back in the days. They were very strict. If you drove a uh, another car other than a Toyota at a corporate office in Torrance, they make you park across the street. and Then you have to walk in. That was that was mentality back in the seventies, eighties. But then it changed soon after when we had new corporate level managers coming in the picture. They said that's not the way it works. Japan doesn't believe in that. You work for the company. It doesn't matter if you drive a Toyota, if you drive a Datsun, or if you drive a Chevrolet or whatever. It's it, it, they don't they don't look at you as what you drive. They look at your performance as what counts the most in the company. Is not what you drive.
0: Well, so that was changed. Uh, you know, a funny story is I, I, I talked to. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm here at a local cars and coffee and I see um, why can't I think of his name right now? He raced the Datsons, uh B- Peter Brock. I yes. see, I see Peter Brock at cars and coffee and everybody's walking around and I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking this guy's a legend, right? He's over here at cars and coffee hanging out and nobody knows who he yeah. is. So I go talk to this guy, right? He designed the, the stingray Corvette. He yeah. designed the Daytona coupe and he, and he raced, um, he raced for, Dotson. And so I went to talk to him and I said, hey, how did you ever start racing for Dotson? And then he tells me this whole story about he was going to race for Toyota and then decides, you know, Toyota ends up selling the program to, to Carroll Shelby because Carroll Shelby has a guy that puts up dealerships, right? And he goes to Dotson and he wants to get Dotson to do a racing program. Dotson says, we don't have any race cars. He says, I'll make that a race car. And he tells me in Japan, when they race the cars, they don't race Toyota against Honda against that. It's only Toyotas against Toyotas and Hondas against Hondas because there's a big respect thing, you know? And I think part of that culture is maybe where it comes from, where they park, they have you park in another parking lot because they want to see only one brand. And, you know, the, the end of that story is, you know, Peter Brock felt he got undercut a little bit by Carroll Shelby, and then he ends up beating the Toyota racing program with a Datsun oh, yeah. that doesn't even make a race car. So it's uh, yeah. it's a testament to the predictability and and reliability of the, of the import cars back then, and the way you could really modify those cars to perform. But so now we're getting on. So you sell so you sell the gear and you pick up a squareback for the wife.
1: Yeah, bought a squareback for my wife. It came from Washington State with fuel injection. And the injector was working okay, so I left it alone. Uh, so the guys I bought it from, they were from another, from another, from Europe. They, they bought the car for a few hundred bucks. They they used it to drive across country to visit the United States. And then they came back to L.A. area and they had to sell it before they went back home. So I bought the square back for my wife and I was looking for one anyway. So I bought it for a good price. And uh, the only thing I didn't like about it was it was all gold paint. It was like cheap paint. I mean... Probably worth a neuro shy in 1995. So <laughs> I said to myself, "Man, that's got to go." So I decided one day I just went crazy. I took a razor blade and then I peeled almost three quarters of the car off with a razor blade. Took all the paint off, and I got the original paint was that, you know, the uh, uh, Zena blue underneath. Yeah. So or diamond blue. So I I scraped half of the car, three quarters of the car with a razor blade, and then I took it to our work at Toyota. We had some time off. Took it to the body shop, and they repainted the whole car for me. And, uh, the engine stayed stocked, the interior was stocked. And as far as the wheels, what happened there is another story is, uh, soon after the MP8 spoke were not being made anymore, uh, I went to work for a friend of mine called Bob Lilligard. Bob Lilligard lived in Southgate, and he asked me one day, he said, Hey, why don't you come and work for me for a few months, because I'm gonna, I'm thinking about reproducing those MP8 spoke. I said, What are we talking about? It? He says, Yeah, I wanna make a mole and reproduce those wheels, but in one piece. I said, would you mind taking the wheel off your Karmann gear so I can use it for for a mold, to have a mold made? I said, Are you serious, Bob? Says, Yeah, I am. So I took the wheel off my Karmann gear. and gave it to him. He had it for almost three weeks, a month. It was in the garage on one jack stand. He finally told me one day, Hey, come and work for me for a while. We're going to start making those one-piece MPH, But I didn't believe him. So I went to the shop uh, in Southgate. And sure enough, he had a mold made. Next thing I know, I worked for him for a few months. Uh, made those wheels, including uh, Porsche alloys. And I went to Outer House and talked to uh, the Outer the House people over there in, uh, um, in Buena Park. And then if you would like to see the NPA spokes one piece being reproduced, they couldn't believe it. So I took them some samples. Next thing you know, who uh, we are making NPA spokes and uh, Porsche alloys. Uh, and then, of course, we were also going to be making the uh, the 8-spoke or 12-spoke for the nine nine 924 Porsche for that. That kind of took off real slow, but there was more demand for the NP8 spokes at that time. And I even told Bob, you should make BRMs because there was more, been more of a problem to make BRMs in one piece, I guess, because of the yeah. mold, there was a situation with that. And he was worried that maybe the five spoke wouldn't be as popular as the eight spoke. So anyway, long story short, then that's, that's what happened there. Uh, and so what, the was company, the name of, what was the name of Bob's company? Uh, Bob Lilligard? Um, it was Lilligard Wheels.
0: Really? And just out of nowhere, he, he decides he's going to reproduce the eight spokes and then start Yeah, he, re-
1: the- Yeah, he got permission from, from uh, Joe Vuitton. I told him wh- what, you ha- what you had to do if you wanted to copy those wheels. You have to make uh, like three different changes on the wheel to be able to reproduce. So he went down and talked to Joe Vuitton or Daryl one time. And uh, got the, he got the okay to go ahead and reproduce the wheels as long as you had three different changes on the wheel. And that was no issue. So I guess he went ahead and did that and he was okay.
0: And and back then, one-piece wheels was like a big technology. Like, now we like three-piece wheels, but now one-piece wheels was like new technology, you know, for, yeah. for aftermarket wheels. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's, you're right. that's, so that's an incredible piece of history.
1: Only, and the auto house was the only a distributor we could sell to. He couldn't sell to no one else. So, actually, the first set of NPA spokes that were made, I told Bob, I want the first set. He says, why? I want to put them on my wife's square back. So, I put them on her square back. So, her car was the first one to have the MP before we sold them to auto house.
0: And what happened to the squareback?
1: Well, you know, we kept it for a while, and that's when I want to buy a bus. So I told my wife I'll sell the squareback. So we sold the squareback. I think, like well, at the time, maybe twenty five hundred bucks. It was really a nice car. It was all painted, and everything. I sold it the very next day. I Get a phone call. The kid that bought it from us they totaled. Somebody had on collision. They totaled the car. I was going to buy the car back just to get the wheels off. of What? But they me to do that. Oh. So they totaled the car. Wow. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of, really. Let me have it, so, man. I, I'm not going to sell to somebody like that anymore. I got to know who's going to drive it, who's going to own my car, feel more comfortable. But anyway, so that squareback was gone.
0: So you get the bus, and now, and and now buses, a bus is a whole another world of Volkswagen. Totally, you know, uh, the, from the people to the perception, cause you now you go from the coolest guy with the bell bottoms and the afro and the super slick gear. Now you're a married guy in this VW bus. Like, what happened yeah. to Frenchie?
1: <laughs> the whole world is changing for the better. The whole world is changing for the better. 100%. Yeah, my son was going to be born. I was so happy and everything. And, and next thing I know, after he's born, I decided to get another car. I got the bus. He was helping me out. I got a split window. I bought I bought him a split window from a friend of mine uh, who was in the early, early DKP club. Uh, they used to call him uh, Buffalo was his nickname. He worked at Auto House uh in uh, San Bernardino or it used to be auto house and then it changed to more racing after that yeah uh, so i bought him Jim Bang was his name so i bought the 51 split from him and come to find out the 51 split was Shaky Jake's original car that he had back in the 70s uh, it was bordeaux red it was kind of faded here and there and stuff so i bought the car from Jim took it home drove that to work from Rialto or close to Redland, all the way to Long Beach, 72 miles one way every day for five and a half years. Oh, wow. I drove the split. I drove my my bus. I drove the square back at times. Then I bought a 65 Pontiac Bonneville and I drove that. That was a lot of gas. I said, forget, I'm parking that one. <laughs> so I drove the split more, you know, but then I had the split and, and that was a, that was a fun car to drive, but, it, you know, t- 36 horse, you know, it took me forever to get to work, but I got good gas mileage out of it, you know.
0: So you even you even had a big a big block in there, a 36 horse in there.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right, 36 horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stock that's... carburetor. It ran good, though, you know. Yeah, a, 30, listen,
0: it... a nice tuned 36 horse would get you down the road pretty good.
1: Yes, it did, and I drove it forever, you know, and then until I bought the bus, uh, I, I found the bus up in, uh, actually Jerry Jess, who was pretty well known in the toy, yeah,
0: Jerry Jess toy world
1: little. years ago, you know. He found the bus for me. He was coming down mm-hmm. to Soto because I was a member of the Soto, uh, club way back when it first started with, uh, Jeff Welcher and Dave Wright. Mm-hmm. So I joined the club and I had, uh, <clears throat> I bought the bus We found it up in Crestline or Lake Arrowhead. And I went up there one Sunday, going up the hill. And I see this bus coming down the hill. Uh, I was looking at another bus actually, and I found this bus coming down the hill. We stopped. The guy said, "Hey, it's for sale." Says, "Yeah, how much you want? Like twenty five hundred bucks." I said, "Go back up the hill." So Jerry had the cash. He loaned me the money, so I bought the bus, drove it back, and then, uh, right at home, my wife was all happy about it. She told me it was the coolest thing ever: original paint, everything. And I kept that for I don't know how many years I've had it. And then one day I had a, a Steve Nye. There's a Carmen Ghia guy. He's, a, he's got all-around car collector. Uh-huh. He decided he wanted to buy it from me because he has somebody in Japan that was looking for a bus I sold. I can not even sell that bus. The original 6061, which was the off-white roof and that avocado color, you know, like pea yeah. green, light. I couldn't even get 3500 bucks for that bus. That's crazy. I couldn't even get that money. It was too much money back then when I sold it. Yeah. That's 1984, crazy. 85, whatever it was. So I sold the bus, and then uh, next thing I know, I got a uh, about a 1941 Lincoln Zephyr, and then uh, I want to learn how to do those motors, you know. So with sure. the, those cars had a V12 with a flathead. So I got, I said, "Oh man, this is a different thing for me to learn." So I pulled the engine out, rebuilt the motor, put the motor back in. Car ran beautiful. Then we decided to move to Arizona. Brought the car to Arizona, and the guy in Tucson wanted to buy the car from me. But the Zephyr for me. Next thing I know, I'm back at a junkyard here in town. We got another '67 Bug and start all over again.
0: Now, the move to Arizona was prompted by work, like a work opportunity in Arizona. What makes you move from LA to Arizona?
1: Yeah, it was our corporate managers in, in Long Beach, Port. After that, was promoted to supervisor. They were looking to have to open up a uh, logistic uh, operation in, in in Arizona here because most of the cars. After they were offloaded at the port of Long Beach, when they were all accessorized for all the dealers, all the way up to New Mexico, Texas, and uh, California, and Arizona, they wanted to start an operation here to where they would put the cars in Long Beach port and rail them to uh, Phoenix with Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, or truck them from Long Beach all the way to the dealers. And it took like two days before the the driver would get back to Long Beach to get another load. And I presented a problem in the harbor for to with a dealership. We're waiting for cars, but because of the law for the logbook, you can only drive so many hours a day, and they didn't have enough time to come back, so we decided to open up an operation in Phoenix. That's when they asked me if I would like to relocate, which I was happy with that. I opened up an office in downtown Phoenix, and then we started to do a shuttle from Long Beach to Desert Center, halfway point with a full load of cars, and then the driver from Phoenix, you would go with an empty truck and they would swap truck and bring them back to the office and then I would give them more work out of the yard. They would come off the train coming from the factory from the US, from the East Coast and Fremont and different areas. They would uh offload them in the yard in Phoenix and then that's how the operation. It was more successful because all the dealers were happy. They would see product every day on their lot versus every other two days, you know. So that sure. was a big problem.
0: So that so that prompts the move to Arizona and now what is it like for you being an, a VW enthusiast going from like Southern California VW Mecca to Arizona? What's the VW scene like and, and how does that – do you, what's your impression of that when you moved to Arizona?
1: Well, when I moved here, as soon as I sold my Lincoln, I figured, well, you know what? The Volkswagen scene was cool, but I didn't want to leave the scene altogether. I was still doing VW and stuff, but not as strong as I wanted to be. So, like I said, I went to a junkyard here in town. I wanted to talk to Jen and Blair. Done on the on Broadway. They had a big junkyard. So I found. I asked a guy just out of the clue. Say, hey, I'm looking for '67 bucks. He says, "Are you in luck? We have one in the back, complete." So I went in the back, and sure enough, here's this car, under dash AC '67. I bought it for 1,500 bucks. I think or two grand. I can't remember now. Nice. Took it home and stripped that sucker down to nothing. And that was my '67. That uh, VW transited feature uh, back in 2000, I think it was. So I did that car. And of course, that started all the, the trend again with you know, the BRMs. Yeah, because that's right. That's right when the new
0: BRMs start coming out, right? The, the, they start yeah. reproducing the BRMs in 2000, I think, somewhere around there 99 or 2000. And you're,
1: you're exactly right because the first set that's on my car is the one that Flat 4 first came out within a month. And Jerry just told me Flat coming out with some BRMs. So we talking about it. So yeah, they're reproducing them. I said, Really? I'll pick you up a set if you want. I'm going to the tour show. So sure enough, you brought me a pair home, and set home. And we traded, I traded the labor for the wheels. I did his Fridland that he had because no one knew what a Fridland was about back then. So he bought a Fridland. Uh, He had a ship from Switzerland here. And I looked at this thing. I said, man, that looks weird. But this is a pretty cool little wagon. So I did most of the restoration on that and I helped him out with it. And he gave me the wheels and trade for labor for putting the car back together for him. Nice. So that was one of the first ones here in the U.S. that I know of as far as the you know, Frilling goes and
0: yeah. stuff. But. So, so now we enter the two thousands and you, and you're now dipping right back into like the cow look flavor again, like the BRMs, the, and this is at the time that the cow, I think the BRM, the reproduction of the BRM is kind of what kicks off the cow look fever again. Yes. Because at the end, in the, in the, in the mid to late nineties, you're getting purple cars and yellow cars and crazy paint colors and everybody's going high polished wheels and, high polish engines like everything's chrome polish chrome polish but then with the the resurgence of the brm it's like things got so crazy like i remember seeing a car in in uh, vw trends and the guy owned a powder coating shop and every piece of his engine is powder coated a different color yellow purple blue like you know new technology and stuff but with that new brm that came out it paid homage to the cow look scene and then everybody because everybody five look is always looking for a different wheel
1: yeah yeah other than the mp5 spokes two-piece those were nice wheels too but right like you said <clears throat> that's correct when the brms came back in the picture uh to be reproduced that kind of made people more interested to to fix the car because you know the, the you know the Porsche alloys were great but you had to drill the you the drums or the disc brakes or the rear drums and all that. And some people, it's kind of a lot of work for them to do all that. But the car looked good with alloys, you know. I mean, that was a nice feature, too. But people want something you just can just bolt on and you're done. There's no drilling to do or nothing, and it looks cool. And then the technology in the B-Arms, of course, we know today is totally different than they used to be when they were two-piece back in the days, you know. But as those wheels age, it were more dangerous to put on the car than the one-piece wheels you get nowadays. You know, technology is different. But, yeah, so it kind of prone people to want to build a uh, pre-67 with, with uh, you know, the BRMs or MP5 spokes or or the Fooch, you know, or the, uh, you know, the other wheels that they make nowadays, 5-lug, you know. But that's the most popular wheel, I think, right? Even on on the late model buses, they have the small small 5-lug Yeah, the uh, small BRMs. nut they tranny, look, yeah. They look pretty good, too. You
0: know, they look pretty cool. Well, you, on my red and black bus, when I was, I, I think I debuted that car in 2001 at the VW Classic, And when I was trying to get wheels, I said, I'm going to be the first bus with BRMs on it. And then I saw a bus with BRMs and that's why I went with the Porsche twist wheels. Cause I said, I want to do something different. And and it was, it was, it was, I had a 66 all stock bug that I lowered, put a turbo motor in and I had the BRMs on it. And it was like a driver cow look bug and the wheels were brand new. I bought them at the bug in here in Las Vegas and I was going to put them on the bus and then. I switched that up, but you know, you know, the what's funny now is that is the first reproduction version of the f- <laughs> people are selling them special. Like this is flat four. Uh, these are the flat four BRM reproductions. So these are the first generation. So now it's funny how everything starts to, you know, become worth more money or be more specialized or specific, like the first generation reproduction eight spokes versus yeah. Eagle alloy eight spokes that were produced years later and mass produced by those companies. So um,
1: yeah, you're right. And, American Eagle making those mp 8 spokes after Bob sold the business, they yeah. went to American American uh, uh, Racing Wheel to made those mp 8 spokes. And of course, the Barm like you said, Flat Forge were the first one to reproduce them. Even so, when I went to the World of Wheels here uh, with my oval window, when I had the I had the center lines. Uh, Daryl Baker helped me. He hooked me up with center lines in Santa Fe Spring. They made me a set of center lines for my Oval window. So I went to the show, World Wheel of Wheels here in Phoenix, one you'll never forget. And there's this big yellow rig parked inside the, the, uh, auto show inside the building. Uh-huh. So I go there. It was, uh, it was, uh, Boy Cuttington, you know, with his big display of wheels and the business that he does and everything. So I approach Bill and I asked him, I says, uh, Boyd, have you ever thought about designing, and I had a picture with me, designing these wheels they call BRN. says, why, do you think there's a market for this? Believe me, if you start making those wheels, you will sell them like crazy. He says, well, I need to get a guarantee that I will sell a lot of the five lugs. as well, all I can give you is my word. As being a guy being a VW for a while, I'm telling you what the market is looking for right now is those wheels to be reproduced, and no one's making them. They're only making the eight spoke. So I give him the words and everything, but... He never, he never really said he was going to whatever. He kind of listened to it, but that was it. And then, yeah. of course, if he would have done it back then, I think he would have done okay.
0: Oh, forget it. I mean, if you look you at – if you, I would have to say of the 21st century since the year 2000, the, the, the number one selling wheel, I would have to say, is probably the Reproduced BRM. I don't know yeah. what wheel is on more Volkswagens than that one, especially because – as Volkswagen guys, we, we have a tendency to get into the hobby because of lack of funds. We want something cool, but we can't afford new, brand new, big money stuff. So yeah. what do we buy? We buy a Volkswagen. Well, we can get wheels, but like you said, you, if you find a set of Porsche wheels for $500, it's a curse because you have Porsche wheels, but now you've got to get disc brakes, redrill, you got to spend another $1,000 to make them fit. Yep. Well, BRM's bolt right on. So Bolt right on? Yes. So, so now yep. we get into... You know the resurgence of the BRM, and you know the 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 respect now to the cow look, and then taking this is like cow look 3.0, right? There's the early cow look, the late 70s cow look, and then there's the 2000s cow look, and 2000s cow look starts to go as original as possible, lowered with minimum modifications, lowered lowered car, big motor, built trans and pretty much bone stock inside, almost. Berg, yeah, yeah. Berg shifter and MPG GTV wheel,
1: you know? And, and it's funny because, you know, even back in the early 70s when the trend was really <laughs> taking off, like mid-70s, you could buy a brand new car, let's say a brand new 67, or let's say at that time, take it home for the weekend, you buy it on Friday night, you take it home, you take the torsion bars out the front, lower the car, you put your BRMs on it. You pull the motor out. You put a set 87s. You put your 48 IDAs. You put your Gene and By Monday, you got a different car. It's <laughs> <Actually, laughs> three day, three day Cal Looker.
0: It's the, it's the custom. Uh, it's the it's customization of the the overnight customization <laughs> of the uh, the Volkswagens. But you know, it becomes just second nature. So you. So what happens with the white 67?
1: For the white 67. I had it for about. Well, I can't remember how you many. You had it a long years. time. Yeah, um, I can't remember how long I had it for, but then I had a friend of mine in Reno, Nevada. He was interested in it. So he called me up one day and I told him it was for sale. Uh, he said, how much you want for it? I think I sold it for, I think I sold it for 13 or 12,000 the way it said. Finished car. Finished car done. Turnkey go. Low mileage. Well, so you- I put it in my trailer. I went all the way up to Reno, Nevada, delivered it. Uh, over Donner's Pass, the, the, the worst way to drive a car with a truck or a trailer, <laughs> right. delivered to his house, put it in the garage. He was all excited. He gave me all money, all cash. I was happy. He came back. Friend of mine, George Myers, he came with me. We went up there as a uh, one of those uh, what do you call it, a uh, road trip. So came back two, three weeks later. He calls me back. He says, "Hey, you got a 1755 in here?" He says, "Yeah." He says, "I want a bigger motor." So "How much you want?" I want a 2332. Says, "How much is that going to cost me?" So I said, might probably about thirteen grand. He says, well, can you put a new transmission? I said, sure. Come and get the car. So I'm back on the trailer. Go all the way back up there. Pick up the car. Bring it home. Took the engine out with the IDAs. Put it in the garage. Pulled the trans out. Put it in the garage. I had uh, uh, Bill Capach here in town build me a brand new transmission to put in there. A freeway flyer to put in there. Yeah, and then yeah. I built a brand new 2332 with another set of IDAs. And indeed, I says, well, let me bring you the motor and transmission back out of the 67 because I, you know, it's your – it says, oh, no, no, no. I'll pay you what I owe you for labor and parts. I want you to keep the motor and I want you to keep the trans. I don't want them. You keep them. Build you another car with it. <laughs> Those so are the, the best motor, friends. Is, the motors on the stand here for my gear whenever I get my other gear going. The transmission that was in 67 is not in my 66 I just finished. Wow.
0: So I did pretty uh, good. I yeah. did pretty good.
1: Well, and that car, then he sold the car. Yeah, and he sold the car after that. He yeah. sold it. It was too crazy. There was too much power. He was scared.
0: And so that's in the and and that's in the uh, that's in the VW Trends magazine. Or, I mean, Hot VWs magazine. And it looks like it's June of, uh, well, it might be ninety nine.
1: Uh, yeah, when it did, uh, Dean Kirsten did the article in that one. And then, of course, it was also in the VW Trends in March two thousand
0: two. Yeah, June ninety eight. That was in. And, you know, that was, like I said, at the time that that's where you start to see. So you're one of the earlier guys that's on the cow look trend of the cow look resurgence, because by the early 2000s, it becomes really, really popular. And it's this it's the it's the it's the check marks of the stock interior stock under the hood. Big motor, lowered front end, BRMs, <laughs> Berg shifter and TV. Yeah, Is- just simple, you know.
1: Few gauges here and there. Attack on the dash. Coco mats. Uh, no eight track or four track at that point. Just AM/FM radio, right? Right. <laughs> or, or actually, CD player or or one of those uh, we call a uh, cassette yeah. cassette deck was upgraded. <laughs> but now, yeah, that was that, the thing.
0: So after uh, after that car, now you've had a few cars after that. Um, you've got probably. Uh, the real recent car that you did, so you've done a couple of cars, and I just wanted to touch on this for a couple of minutes. You had a 66 Bug that you just finished. Correct. And it created quite a stir on the internet. You- I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> <You> put- <laughs> I, stir- I stirred the pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know and it's and i want to talk about that for a minute right so i you know my brother and i talked about on a previous podcast and i said well here's my opinion and we're talking about this but th- th- here's the reality okay so you get that car you put it for sale and you're selling it like it, and everybody knows you've got documents of all the cars that you build and how you build them and and i think you do a really decent job building cars i mean you're real detail oriented i mean you're you're like a uh, you make me crazy. I go to your garage, everything's perfect. And it, it makes me crazy. I've been, when I've been to, your, to the parties at your house, they used to have at the old uh, buggerama days. Uh, you know, I go over there or the, you know, the Phoenix bug in, I go over there and I look at your garage. I'm like, how can this guy do any work? It's perfectly clean in here. It makes me crazy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Dr. Doctor, doctor detail. Yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Cause my, you know, my garage is a mess, but anyone who's ever been to your house knows that you're really meticulous when it comes to detail and, one of the bad, the good thing about the internet is you get a lot of eyeballs on something. The bad thing about the internet is everybody has their their ability to give their two cents whether it's asked for or not.
1: Now tell me the story on the 66 bug. So the way I found it basically. So I found a car, a neighbor when we live in Tempe, two houses, two streets behind. He was working on it and he kind of gave up on the project. And the car was already somewhat uh and primer so i I bought it from him took it home and put in the garage made a dolly for it and of course because i only had a two three car garage it was kind of limited for space so some of my cars sat outside with a car cover on and and split window was in 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 the living room of course at that time right Uh, my 54 was in the garage of course my 32 roaster was in halfway done so that was covered up so so the 66 came home and i waited until we moved to uh, queen creek so i could really have a bigger much bigger garage to be able to have all these cars stacked up in there, and I was able to work on it. So brought the car home. Uh The engine was, of course, is the engine that was in the 67. Uh, Even so, I built a bigger one. I decided to put that one aside and build another motor. So I built a 2165 for that. Transmission, of course, out of the 67 went into that pan, 66. Did the disc brakes, narrow 4-inch beam, and the, and the ball joint did that. And then when it came to body and paint, uh, of course, me doing engines for Buddy Hale Type One Restoration in Tempe. I decided to take the car to to uh, to to Buddy to do the body and paint because I want to upgrade myself. To looking back at the gear, I said, man, that car was really nice back in those days. Only paid, I think, when I did the body and paint on that gear. I think I spent twenty five hundred bucks, and that was a lot of that was money. A too. lot of money. You could buy a, a lot car of money back then. So I says, man, so let me take it to Buddy because Buddy, you know, he's, he's got a he's got a good. Uh, background he's got a good uh how can i say uh uh, attention
0: to detail and and and
1: attention to detail he's well-known worldwide for the kind of stuff he does and then uh, i mean any kind of car you give the guy is just unbelievable so i decided to take the car over there so i took the shell because i had the shell separate from the pan which i wanted to do a complete frame off at that time so took the body to buddy and he said to buddy hey i want this thing here to be cal look my son did some of the the front fender welded the holes for the turn signals, did the rear apron, Uh PP hole weld those in, did all the holes in, the, some of the holes elsewhere he welded for me. So my son did a lot of little work here and there to help me out. And then after that I took it to Buddy Hale. Buddy went ahead and gave him the match. He had it for almost, I'd say probably almost a year, you know, on and off working on it. But as you can see, the final product, I was taking pictures as he was working on it back and forth. And then when he got, got back to the house here, but the body and paint on that car is just unbelievable you can paint buddy so you can paint it black if you want to I, I had a black car before but that's too much work but i know your paint job are, are the best i mean I, I, there's other people out there but i think buddy to me as far as VW world i think he's unbelievable so now let's go and uh, shoot it the uh, zenith blue i've always liked that color because my oval window was painted that color before and so was our square back so i said now let's go ahead and do a zenith blue so paint a zenith blue i had to paint all powder coated in the meantime uh, and then I put all new, all new rubber throughout the Wolfsburg West. Almost everything I bought for the car came from Wolfsburg West, the bumpers, the, all the rubber, uh, you name it. They all came from there, and their stuff is top-notch. I mean, they they, they reproduce stuff that's really nice. The only thing you can not get from them is the cal rubber windshield, side rear window, and the rear window cal rubber without the slit, you know, for the chrome. So I had to go to Lauren Pearson and West Coast Metric to get that, which... Their stuff is really nice too, really right. nice. But most of the stuff I got for the 66 was for from Wolfsburg West. I mean, you name it, it, it all came from there. Uh, other than you know having the engine done work and balancing by uh, Mike Fisher here and Tempe did all the machining for me. And then Lawson helped me out with a few pieces on the car and stuff and CB Performance pad down over there for the, for the uh, disc brake conversion and all that. So all those guys are down to earth. You know, they know I've been in the business for so many years and all those guys that recognize you, they are there to help you out because word of mouth, first impression to me is what's the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't matter. If you go to a shop, you come to my garage, first impression, again, if the house is nice and clean, the garage is nice and clean, people look at that as far as ah, I think I'm gonna have this guy build me a motor, because the way he keeps his stuff, you know, organized, that's the kind of guy I want to work on my car. You know, so the sixty-six got done uh the night before i took it put on the trailer to go to the bug in two years ago my son helped me finish the exhaust in still exhaust he had to do it sig well the the back to to make it fit perfectly put in the trailer took it to the bug in had a good time over there with the cars in there with 15 other cars for the america's most beautiful vw and stuff and uh, that that was a nice turnout and then as i was leaving. Shin Watanabe told me, "Say, hey, let's do a feature on your 66. So I took the car out of the trailer at the end of the track and when everybody was pretty well gone for the day. And Shin went ahead and took a whole bunch of pictures and did a beautiful article in Heavy W. Not only did he do a nice article, I was so shocked, probably more than when I had my gear done, when he told me that car is going to be on the cover. Nice. Like a couple, two days before, you know, here it is. Cars on the cover of the magazine. I mean, that just totally floored me right there. I mean, that's, that's a great feeling. I mean, as old as I am right now, to have a, another car on the <laughs> cover like this, it's like, wow. Yeah. Now, I, don't want, I want to build another one even better now. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, so
0: let's talk about that. So that car, no stone unturned. I mean, but yeah, yeah, it's been painted by. And it's funny. It's painted by Buddy Hale, and a lot of people are saying stuff like, "I don't care who painted it. Oh, just because it's on the cover, it's worth twenty five thousand more. It's this, it's this, it's this." Yeah. But I think what they don't realize is, you know, that car is brand new, front to back, top to bottom. The the stuff that you've done, the attention to detail that you have in assembling the cars, put them together. You make sure everything's working exactly right. You know,
1: like if they were my cars. Even so, some of them may not be. I do them like if they were my cars.
0: Right, and so. You know, you're you're selling the car to get to build a shop to add some, you know, to get some more workspace over at your at your place, and the price you had on the car, what was the price on the car? Sixty five.
1: I was putting it at sixty or sixty five. I kind of threw a crazy number. I forget, right. you never know. You know, they bring one hundred and fifty for a bus at Bear Jackson, or two hundred thousand. Right. Somebody right. may say sixty five. That's cheap. I got to buy this thing. So you know, sometimes if you if you put a number and you sell it that quick, you must you, you tell yourself. Wow, maybe I undersold that thing. Maybe I should have sold it for more. Right. Right. So you never
0: know. So with that, with that being said, you know, it's it's interesting because some of us, some of us guys that uh, you know, the younger generation, they can't handle certain things. They can't handle a little bit of bullying, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that, that we, we kind of grew up with, you know, the generation pre-internet, right? And then the internet allows everybody to have their opinion and say what they want, uh, and and these types of things. But I think, you know, looking at the car and it's a nice car, you know, the value of that car is debatable as to where you can, you know, place that. But the question is, can you build it? Can you build the same level car for the same price? Can you... And then, what is your time worth, right? So, can you? You know, you're
1: right. You're probably not, you probably, not It probably costs a lot more money because my labor is probably a dollar an hour. It seems like anymore.
0: Well, so <laughs> you know, and the difference is, you <laughs> can walk in tomorrow, buy that car, and you've got a car that's done, sorted, ready to go. It's it's not something with a regret purchase. So, good luck on the sale. I don't know what you're going to get for it when it ends up. It'll be interesting to see. But we've seen things start to go up. I'd be interested to see what would happen if that car. Or marketed properly and run through Barrett Jackson.
1: You know, Barrett Jackson could be very unpredictable because I've seen cars go through. Matter of fact, one of my neighbors just bought one of Boyd's car, a thirty four chop top Ford that has been over two hundred fifty thousand dollars and He got it for seventy grand. Yeah. So you never know about, never know about Barrett Jackson. It's almost better to sell it, private party if you know somebody's interested in the, in, in what you have. And Barrett Jackson could be very scary. Otherwise, on on this, you have to buy it back because there's no reserve. So you never know. You could get more. You could get less. You, you never know about those shows. That's the only problem. You know, that's that's scary.
0: No, hundred percent. And so you know, yeah. So you've got that car for sale. And then I noticed. I think are you selling the split window too?
1: The split window. I sold it four years ago to Jim LeJudas. Matter of fact, I just got my hobby W today, and it uh, it's a it's a vintage scene to have a base split window on the cover this month. And my car is in there right now that I sold to Jim four years ago. And Jim redid the car. Uh, he redid it. It looks really nice. The repaint's been redone. The insurance has been the same material, but they redid it. The guy here in Phoenix redid it. He wasn't supposed to really get into the extent of what he did. But Jim got it back, and it's it's. Uh, I think he's selling it right now as well. Uh, but, yeah, so the split window went. Other than the split, I have here in the garage, which I didn't advertise too much, I also have a 1968 Toyota Crown, which is the only one registered in Arizona right now Really, uh, with with a six-cylinder. And I also have another one like it, a 67, in the backyard. And probably the rarest one I have is a 1958 Toyopet, they call them back in the days, because Toyota shipped Toyota back in 1957, only two of them. In 1958, they shipped 225, and I was only five known in the U.S., as of right now, and I had two of them. One went to Puerto Rico after I had it all not done perfectly, but somewhat cleaned up with a new motor, buffed it out, new interior, all cleaned up, look good. So that went to Puerto Rico, and the other one is here in my backyard at 58. So there's only five known in the U.S. Other than my 32 Roadster that I've had for probably about 18 years now or 20 years. Yeah, uh, that's got the V12 Zephyr motor. It's been on the magazine. Cover of Hemmings Motor News two years ago, and also in the deluxe magazine, the Hot Rod magazine, they had a feature in there as well. And I also have a 28 Roadster flathead V8. I'm going to be putting together. I'm ready to put it back together now with the motor and everything. But I got so many projects in the garage. I got an eight car garage, and I'm already grown outgrown that one there. Well, and that's and that's, that's, that's why we're building another shop. The more cars you have, the more room you need, right? And yeah,
0: that's us guys. You don't have to tell me. You know, I got I've got my shop's 1,200 feet, and it's. It's well, overfilled, yeah. and I've got cars in the backyard, you know. So. Yeah, you buy
1: one-bedroom house with a 20-car garage. That's where you should be. <laughs> I mean, I work for everybody, but, you know, for me, I probably would have. <laughs> right, right. Well,
0: and, and that's the thing. It's like, you you know, unless you, you have to retire to be able to have the time to put in the cars that you've put into, but now you really get to enjoy your passion, it's just – it, you have to be you have to try to be a little more resourceful, otherwise you go broke because you have enough time to work on everything. you just start running out of money if you just get too many projects going at once
1: <laughs> well my my problem now is I retired six years ago and I've had done more v w engine work and restoration than I've done in the last thirty years. Wow, right now on the board, I've got eight engines to build right now, and three of those are for buddy one is from your your part of town in Vegas, yeah. I think a convertible, but I've got, like I said, nine to 10 engines to build right including two nine 12.
0: That's, that's so, and I'm
1: retired. People say, no, you're not retired. You're still working. He said, but you don't understand. If I didn't like it, it's a hobby for me. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd be at the golf course and having a few brewski while I'm over there. Yeah. But not the case. I'm in the garage doing what I love to do. And, and that's what it's all about. Well,
0: and you know, one of the questions I want to ask you now, you've been in Phoenix now longer than you lived in Southern
1: California. By one year, by about a year, I think. Do
0: you consider yourself a Californian, or are you a, are you proud to be a Phoenix guy?
1: You know, I miss California in many ways, mostly for the VW scene. I miss not to be able to see all my buddies over there from DKK, DKP, DSSK, all those guys over there. Right. Because I'd be there with them every weekend, to the cars and coffee. That's the thing I miss the most. is just the VW friendship with all those guys I've known over the years. Because here we have it too. But it's not as popular and as crazy as it is over there, and more into it as we are here in Phoenix. Yeah, you know, you don't see too many high caliber cars here. You do a few, but California's got the mecca; it's got it all over there. You know, but for here, it's it's a different uh, atmosphere because the weather is different. Conditions are different here than the beach. You know, California is a little cooler. There's more events over there, rallies and car shows and stuff like that. But no, I like it here. I mean, I'm half and half, I guess. Half California, half here. And I think I'm okay with that, and I look forward to go to the buggins and when hey, I go to this coast Hey,
0: I've only known you since you've lived in in Phoenix, so to me, you're a desert rat like the rest of us. And, <laughs> but desert trap. And there's something different about being from the desert, especially like trying to build and buy and drive fast Volkswagens. Like, you're right. Or, yeah, you're right. The the heat. I remember we were at your place. This is years ago, but we were having the conversation about cooling the because in the desert in Vegas and in, in, in Arizona we always talk about how do we keep our cars cool, right? How do you how to cool the engines? And we remember having the conversation about propping the deck lid up from the bottom using the the, the standoffs on the top and all this kind of stuff. And I think that's that's a desert uh, a, a desert guy's conversation, you know? Because every time I get in Southern California for when they used to have the classic and all that kind of stuff you know, it's like, man, this weather's So per- my Volkswagen loves to be down here. Cause it runs nice and cool. It doesn't feel like it's getting hot. You know, it's it's just such a different environment to be cruising your Volkswagen, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to know you and be able to spend some time with you when I was, you know, go down there for the shows. Hopefully I get to see you this year at the, uh, at the bug in. And, uh, I'm going to be down. I'm probably going to hit Prado for one day this year. Um, but, uh, yeah, Any Before we wrap it up, what what do you got coming? You have anything else
1: coming up next? You're going to be working on? Uh, right now, today, I I just finished the uh, the motor for Philip Muscat that you know he used to be in yeah. Vegas, right? Philip, he's a good friend of mine. Down to Earth, they got a cool club here called Desert Dub. Those guys are really, they're really uh, the the best. I mean, they're really enthusiastic about the hobby and everything. But I uh, just finished Phil's motor. We had a little issue with an oil leak, which was really, really minor. So I got this motor going again, but. Other than that, I just did another, I don't know if you heard, but I did another engine, a stock 1600 from one of their members in the club. He had a 62 convertible, and the kid was, he had a 40 horse, he leaked so much oil, he couldn't really afford it with his job that he had. So I got with the club and then decided to come up with a, a certain amount of money and the funds for me to buy the parts. And I volunteered to build the motor at no cost, the whole engine from beginning to end, put it back together for him. And this past Saturday, we unveiled the car and. The, in the driveway, uh, in the garage here, and he uh, he was so excited about it because I, I bluffed him. I told him, hey, the whole club was over here, and we were going to pull the engine out to figure out what the oil leak was on this flywheel and his 40-horse, blah, blah, blah. And after we had the car jacked up and the motor out, I told him, I said, uh, Brendan, you know what? I'm going to mess around with the flywheel, flywheel sister. I think I got a better idea. I said, I pulled the cover off the motor, I had just finished building for him, and he was just totally emotional about it. It was crazy. But Philip was over here, and... and uh, so the whole club was, was, uh, that was the coolest thing ever for one of their members. But that's the way it's all about. It's about team, be a team player, to, to help each other. In my case, doing this for 50 years, donating a motor or my time to someone, to somebody put a smile on his face and be happy. That to me is more important than making the money. You know, that's yeah. what it's all about. 100%. So,
0: that, that's what it's totally. worth.
1: Totally. But for now, actually, like I said, I've got like seven, eight more motors to build. I got a 912, I got to finish up. And then, uh, after that, I got my tanker project and my Formula V, which hopefully I was hoping to go this year to uh, to the uh, uh, salt flat. With Are you going to go? I won't be able to make it this year, so it might have to be next year. But then we're also building a uh, belly tank, which I had pictures posted on Facebook. It's like a, a belly tank, which is a drop fuel tank out of a P-38 World War II bomber. And then a lot of those guys, after the war, they would build those speed uh, land speed tanks. Uh, Car you know, with flat V8, Fords in them, and they sure. would go to this all-flat. I'm building one of those for the streets right now with a Type 3 mid-engine. So that's my latest project. When I get everybody else's motor done.
0: Nice, nice.
1: <laughs> well, so never dull moment here, that's for sure.
0: No, without, without question. I look And I look forward to, to running into you here in the near future at some of these events. And uh, yes. if anybody wants to check out uh, what Frenchy's got going on French. His website is Frenchiesrides.com. You can see a lot of the history we talked about, and a lot of the cars. I'll put a link to it down in the description of the podcast. And um, if you guys want to hit up Frenchy, you can get to him on Facebook. Um, Frenchy, anybody you want to give some, some, some shout outs to, or some, uh, some um, appreciation to, for some of the people that have been, out, that been involved with you in the VW scene out there in Phoenix or wherever people that have supported you.
1: You know, I mean, it would take me another hour between <laughs> me and you, Bill, to, to uh, mention all these names. But, you know, all the ones that come in mind is all the guys in Phoenix, Mike Fisher, Dan Lawson here, Bill Capacity does the transmission. Of course, in California, Ron Fleming, and you've got, uh, Geneberg Enterprise, uh, D. Berg and Gary Berg over there, uh, as far as, uh, helping me out. And, uh, also, a Pat Down over CB and then Joni over at MP, uh, and there's a lot of people out there. Of course, I don't want to miss any names, but like I said, it would take me another hour before I no, can all names. I mean, there's a lot of people that really made the industry uh, so interesting for all of us and the newcomers in the hobby to be able to afford what we want to do, our dream cars, you know, whatever it might be. But if it wasn't for those people out there and Tony Moore over Wolfberg West and Richard over there and the whole gang at Wolfburg West and uh, all these guys, all these industries that are helping us reproduce those parts and making those parts for us. CIP one uh, J bug. I mean, there's so many, many, many more people out there that is uh, Keith Zoom and everybody from the East Coast, all the magazine, Dean Christine, Dave Cormack, uh, uh, Keith Zoom, and all, all Stefan, all those guys in Europe from the club. Uh, I mean, this I could be sitting here forever and talking about <laughs> all these people, but they, they pretty much know who I'm talking about. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, French, yeah, I, I'm glad we got to have you on here because I've been chasing you for a while and I'm glad we got to sit down and, and, and get your story on here. And I'm sure there's much more to tell and, and we'll, we'll more likely than that, uh, more likely than not, we'll, we'll come, back to, uh, come back to you again on some, on some deep dives in history when I start putting some history projects together about what was going on back then.
1: And uh, I thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, Bill. And uh, sorry, it took me a whole year for you to get back to me, but, you know, that's what happens when you retire. You forget what goes on out there as far as uh, I'm so busy in the garage right here. But, again, going back to my Facebook page, uh, if people want to uh, get on my Facebook, it would be under my real real first name, which is Jean-Louis, L-O-U-I-S, which is the first name. Last name would be D-E-H-O-U-X, or parenthesis, Frenchie. You can go in and you can see the kind of stuff I do on Facebook and what I've done so far, and that's a good place to go. Other other than that, Bill, maybe I'll see a debugging coming up on the 20th for sure. No,
0: totally, Frenchie. I appreciate it. If you like that podcast, make sure you share it with some friends. We love when you share the podcast. You want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com slash door or click on the link down in the description. Also, click on the link to get a link to go directly to Frenchie's Rides website where you can see tons of pictures and more detailed history of what we talked about. So check out the link in the details for more insight on the podcast as well as pictures or links to sponsors and websites that we may have talked about during the podcast. Shout out this week goes to Tommy Smith out of Leander, Texas. He's one of my boys who was down here when we did the Troy Wheeler podcast. He's a good old boy from Texas. He rolls the chum bucket. He's also down with the VW Life Crew. So check out their YouTube page as well as check out our YouTube page at Let's Talk Dubs for some content that we put on there periodically. Until next week, guys. Later.
1: Nice station wagon to Hammer.